Welcome to Challenge of the Decade. Challenge of the Decade is a podcast series by FMO, the Dutch Entrepreneurial Development Bank, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. In this series, we'll be discussing the challenges that lie ahead and the actions that need to be taken to reach the UN's sustainable development goals in the coming 10 years. My name is Jonathan Gruber, and in this episode, we're talking about fragile states and how to invest in them. What are the risks, dangers, and pitfalls? And are they a risk worth taking? To help me answer those and many other questions we have to guests, uh, we have Patricia Nicolau. Did I say that right? Yes. And she's the environmental and social manager at FMO. Hello, Patricia. Hello. And we have also Heske Verburg, and she is the managing director at Solidaridad Europe. Welcome, Heske. Thank you. So, Patricia, I'm going to start with you. And my first question is, your job description is environmental manager at FMO. So what is your day like? Um, So I manage a team of environmental and social officers, um, and they are really... uh, the people that are doing this this incredible work at FMO, that they look at the impact that our projects could potentially have. Um, and they look at the impact in terms of environmental and social impacts. So not the financial. They go hand in hand with the financial teams. And so we visit our projects, uh, potential clients, and we see how can we do no harm by investing in these projects. So what are the sort of things that we need to have in our contracts that our clients need to do uh, to make sure that there's no negative impacts? And if there are negative impacts, what do we need to do to make sure to, to we will call them, mitigate them? Um, So you do a lot of traveling around to the places where you're potentially going to invest in or have invested in, yes? Exactly. So we we do that throughout the duration of the um, project loan, the loan. Okay. And Heska, um, you work at Solidaridad Europe, and you're one of the bosses there. We just talked about this before Mm -hmm. we came in here. So tell us briefly about Solidaridad's mission and your role. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan. Well, Solidaridad is an international civil society organization. And together with around 900 colleagues around the world, we strive for more sustainable and inclusive supply chains. So our vision is that all we produce and consume can sustain us, the planet and the next generations. So that's why we work in supply chains like coffee, tea, palm oil, but also gold to with the farmers, the workers and the miners at the beginning of the supply chain, but also with all other actors within the supply chain, uh, corporates, service providers, but also uh, governments to ensure that this supply chain is going to be more fair. And when we say supply chain, you mean in growing things like coffee, as you said, right? In the places where... Uh, Patricia might visit, for example, exactly. with her bank. Yes. So we work around the world and we are active in all those developing countries where farmers produce the food we have on our plates. Okay. So, and this is the kind of stuff that that us here sitting in the middle of Northwestern Europe, we might be consuming these things. Yes? Definitely. Okay. Now that we know what it is you guys do for a living, and before we really get into it, maybe it's a good idea to get a picture of what a fragile state actually is. So very, very briefly, how do you define a fragile state, Patricia? 
Um, well, there's actually quite a few definitions of the World Bank every year, uh, you know, issues uh, a list of countries. Uh, but basically, it's is countries where there are weak uh, governance uh, institutions are weak. Uh, the legal and regulatory frameworks um, are weak. Um, the the whole governance structure of that country is is quite weak. Yeah. Um, and so there's a high level of corruption, for example, and security. Sometimes of, uh, a lot of times violence. Is, um, are the court systems independent? Exactly. So that's what maybe I mean. Not. Weak. Maybe, maybe not. not. Yeah. Or they they want to be, but they are not because of the corruption, etc. So all of these things that we take for granted, they're are quite weak in terms of, of, of being able to function properly. And just to make sure, Heska, is this a definition that you would agree with as to what a fragile or weak state might be? Well, sometimes people nowadays say even the United States is a fragile state, but maybe we shouldn't go into that ally. But I think for, for now, the sake of this discussion, uh, fragile states are those least developed countries where people face persistent poverty, uh, huge unemployment, uh, food security, is at stake. So this is, I think, for the listeners, a good well, way of describing an, uh, a fragile state. And states don't like to be labeled as fragile because that means they have a very high risk profile and it's not easy to get loans. And that's when they come to organizations like FMO, I assume. Correct. It is our mandate as well to invest in these uh, in these countries, but it is also our mandate to try and, and, and bring others along which might not naturally feel so comfortable in such what it's also called high-risk countries. Imagine, just for the sake of argument, that people got that money to invest in their business. What would they do with it? For example, you, you have clients who actually do this. What are they doing with the money? Well, how, is, how is the changes being made? I'll give you an example. Freddy. Freddy is an entrepreneur. He lives in Bolivia. And he grows together with a bunch of farmers superfoods like those are so popular in uh, Europe nowadays. Goji berries. Yeah, goji berries, quinoa, chia. Um, so uh, what does he need? He needs money, 40,000 euros, to grow his business and to invest in more uh, product products and in the logistics to pre-finance to be able to export them. There's no bank willing to finance him. So what happens? He's stuck his business is still small and there's no ability to grow. But imagine if there is investments, he can grow his business, he can create jobs for a number of people, he can uh, increase the income of 50, 60 farmers growing those products. Um, there is a sustainable economic development in the country. The families involved will have a living income, they will face less challenges in their daily food supply, for example. So it's a very positive effect of only one entrepreneur being able to invest in his business. Do you have an example, Patricia? Oh, we have many. I mean, that's what we do, right? As a bank, we invest, uh, we loan money to uh, clients and, 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 and to invest in projects. So I can, we can do a quite range. Give me one, one who you think really stands out. Oh, that stands out. Um, sugarcane plantations in Sierra Leone or agroforestry in Sierra Leone. Right. How did money transform the business? 
This is actually. Um, let me then tell a, st- a story I told a, I told a while ago, because it's. Uh, I think it's one of the things that we need to have. One of the things that was successes in, in investing in fragile countries is very much you have to look at it from an, an innovative way because you have to overcome so many challenges, right? Um, and uh, and I went to this project in Sierra Leone to see how they were doing uh, and to do our monitor. And of course, you this is a sugarcane business. Yes, um, and you go in um, with armed with all the KPIs from the bank, from our investors, from our uh, shareholders, from our um, government. This is what we need to do. So we need to find out. This is how I measure success of how well they're doing on the social and the environmental. And I'm asking uh, quite a lot of questions. And I asked the uh, mayor of this little village, of this, which is no longer a village, it's now a bit bigger because it's grown because of the company, how he, how he thought the impact had been over the past uh, four or five years at the company was there and uh, he gave me a very nice anecdote that I thought this is actually brilliant because it, 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 it's, it touches on so many things. He said, Patricia, before the company came, we had one nightclub and now not only do we have three nightclubs, but now you have to pay to get in. <laughs> and I thought that's actually quite brilliant. It really shows that one, it's normally, it's not, it's youngsters that go to nightclubs. It's youngsters that if the fact that they have extra money to be able to pay to a nightclub um, and, and go in, it means that they are, the economy is circulating. There are, there is that. So for me, that's, that showcases, for example, um, how these companies can change. And when he said that to you, how did that make you feel? I thought he was he was a genius. I was like, why don't we have this incorporated in our KPIs? And how did that make you feel? Very happy. Yeah, why? Of course. Because this is the nature, that this is why I'm working for FMO. This is why I'm actually working in this field, is to actually have an impact. One of the things that... As a personally, I don't find the notion of poverty at all a romantic notion. A lot of people have this idea. Oh, but in Africa, people are always smiling. and might, lo- you know, the, by intervening, you're gonna, they're going to lose uh, a lot of their um, of their traditions, and uh, maybe they're better off just being there. Well, why does that matter to you? Because I'm African. Uh, <laughs> you grew up in Mozambique, didn't you? Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah. I'm Mozambican. Yeah. And for me, I, I don't think, I think, you know, you, you, there are ways to help them. Today, the world has evolved in such a way that we should not have these problems that you see them today. They should not have financing issues for farmers, but we still do. And in these countries, we still do. And yet we have the tools to support that. So not doing is just not a question. And Heska, you know, while we're at it, why are you doing this job? Because I, I, before we went into this, I learned a little bit about your background. Mm-hmm. You had pretty much a solid business study. You worked for Shell, Banks. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, here you are doing this do-good job, <laughs> trying to go around and change the world. Why are you doing this? Well, uh, actually, I think there's so much injustice in the world. And there's so many things which go wrong. There's so much inequality. Um, and, I mean, you can do good in, in, in many ways. Yeah, but, but you know what? Everyone knows that there's a lot of injustice and bad things happening in the world. Why you? Well, I chose to... De- de- uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I chose to, well, devote my career to doing good because I believe I can make a difference. And with my daily work, I can make the world a better place. So this is what I do. This is my intrinsic motivation. And I believe strongly that to enable people to have a, a, um, a job, uh, to be able to 
pay the school fees of their children, uh, to uh, be respected in their communities and what they do, uh, that will bring the world further. Has anybody ever called you naive? They call me smart, intelligent, beautiful, but naive, no. Nobody's ever called you naive before? <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe. Even hardcore businessmen and bankers hear your mission to go out there and save the world, and, and they say, why are you doing this? Why why don't you just get a job, a normal job like us? Oh, but I'm also paid for my job, eh? so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's You know, I think we, we can make the world a better place together, and we need people everywhere. We need people in civil society like me, but we need also people in banks. Uh, we need also people, journalists, who ask critical questions. We need people in the private sector who are uh, changing the way from within. Uh, so we need all those people, but only together we can make the world a better place and achieve those sustainable development goals. So let's talk about potential investors. Why would somebody want to put their money into a failed state, Heska? Well, I I will be very honest with you, Jonathan, and also Patricia, and also with the listeners. If you are risk averse and you don't want to take any risk and you just want to make money, don't go into a fragile state. Don't invest in developing countries. Don't invest in agriculture. But if you want to do something good with your money, if you want to give your money meaning, If you like the idea of really making a difference in people's lives, in creating jobs, in ensuring food security, then you definitely should invest in fragile states because it's a huge opportunity to make impact. And the funny thing is, well, most likely you will get your money back and you can invest it again and again and again. When you say most likely, is that... I mean, what does that actually mean? Well, it means it's risky business because we're talking about, well, fragile states, developing countries. So it means that we can have a disaster. We can have a war coming in. We can have a government uh, uh, falling down, lots of conflicts. So it means you're never sure when you invest. So you have to have a certain risk appetite and really this uh, motivation to make impact to invest in fragile States. So you're saying this could be great, you could make a whole lot of money, but it's not for the faint of heart. Exactly. Pat- Patricia, Haska thinks investors should be altruistic with their money. They should want to improve the lives of small farmers. In your experience, does this pitch work? Oh, I'm not on the commercial side, but uh, I mean, I do have a... But you work for a bank. I, it's a development bank. I understand. Mm-hmm. It's still In, a bank, it, though. It is, but it is, it is a development bank. It is, uh, uh, the development is, is quite important um, in our mission. Um, but I do, I do want to, I, I want to, maybe I'm, I'm more optimistic um, than Heska here. It, it, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not, it's not, that I agree. But... There are so many opportunities and we see so many investors coming in that not necessarily the impact might be the thing that is driving them, but the impact, of course, is will uh, you will the fact that you're giving jobs in, in, in a country that doesn't have many job employment, uh, job opportunities is there. Um, so I actually think there's a lot more opportunities for investors to invest in um, in fragile countries. What I 
also understand is that they might not want to do it alone. It becomes too risky for them, which is why there are development institutions out there that are the front runners and we try and bring them along. The idea being that we they become so comfortable um, in being able to develop in these countries that they no longer need us to, to be the first, you know, the front runners. That's what we're striving for. Um, and this almost reminds me of solar panels in the beginning. No one wanted to invest in solar projects because they're very unique. Nowadays, all of the commercial banks are investing because it's no longer something that's really extremely high risk. But if you go in with an innovative mind with uh, you have to have yeah it's not for the faint of heart you have to be committed and you have to go not naively we've talked about naive with fragile you have to understand the context you have to really take the context and uh, understand it and actually do your business according to its context. Otherwise, you can't come in from outside and try and put Western ideas. May I just add, because you were talking, you shouldn't go there in uh, in a naive way. And that's exactly it. I think it's it's naive to think it's easy money in fragile states. But it's also naive to focus in those times only on the financial returns. Because only focusing on profit maximization also leads to exhaustion of natural resources, exploitation of of resources, uh, poverty. Um, So we really have to take the broader picture into account and know that what we are doing, we're doing right and that we will also want to make impact in those countries. Can I just play devil's advocate here for a second, guys? Okay. So I'm your your average European investor, and I have my big bag of money, and I'm looking to put my money into something that's going to make me some kind of a return. Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. But, of course, I live here. I live in Europe. I live in the United States, or I live mm-hmm. in some developed country in Asia. Uh, how do you convince someone like me to go and make that investment beyond the idea of it just being an altruistic good thing to do? Mm-hmm. How would you sell it to me? Hmm. This is the elevator pitch to the capitalist. Well, there are a couple of ways, I will tell you. Uh, Maybe you think it's far away. You don't know anything on what's happening in those developing countries. But imagine you wake up in the morning and you take your shower and you wash your hair. The palm oil, which is in your shampoo, is probably produced by a smallholder farmer in one of those developing countries. Then you go down, you have your coffee, you eat your banana, you use your laptop and your phone, all consisting, containing industrial minerals produced by miners in those developing countries. So it's actually pretty close. And then if you realize that this coffee farmer um, is facing severe challenges because of climate change, so 50% of all coffee plantations will not be suitable for coffee in 2050 anymore. So your coffee is at stake if this coffee farmer is not investing in climate smart agriculture. But to invest, this coffee farmer needs money and he doesn't have any money. So it's really also something to think of. It's more close than you think. Okay, and then uh, uh, Patricia working for FMO. FMO can play a crucial role here too because they have the ability to de-risk your money. Yeah, if, if I was going to have an elevator pitch, I think I would say give it to FMO and we'll manage your money for you and we'll invest it uh, in, in in developing countries, in fragile um, in fragile and conflict affected states. Um, 
I am, of course, when I speak, a lot of times I go to the poorest of the poor. I go to the fragile, but there's, of course, a huge range uh, of, of, of countries within these. Um, but I think, you know, to an investor, you want to diversify. You want to, to strengthen if, if you are a, a company here that requires certain types of, of, of re- natural resource. You want to be able to, to strengthen your supply chain because that strengthens your whole business. You want, um, you know, you will have in these countries, of course, uh, naturally lower costs of, of, of inputs and lower costs of resources. Um, so the, the, there are, there is a business case for investing in these countries. It's not, it's not easy, of course not, um, because it's different from where we come from. But there's a business case there. Can I, can I make a lot of money as an investor if I invest in these? Yeah, is there money yeah. to be made? Well, yes, there is you money can, to be made. But and you can also I, lose a lot of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not. I'm leaving. <laughs> My money's not going anywhere near this woman. <laughs> I'm honest. I'm just honest high with risk, you. High risk, high, high yields, right? High risk, high risk but is that true? Yields. No, but yeah. no, but in all seriousness, is it is high risk? Yes, I think we've made the case. It's definitely high risk. Yeah. But then, seriously, in all seriousness, is it also high yield? Can you also make a lot of money? You can. You, I mean, I think there have been, there's all kinds, there's all kinds and all kinds of cases of people that, of course, they do make uh, um, a lot of money. It is very high risk. Uh, interest rates are much higher in many times also when you, you know, because of the high risks. Um, because right now, I mean, I mean, the interest rates in Europe and the United States and in Asia, they're at zero. Low. Zero. Mozambique, it's Jonathan, what I'm trying to do all the time here is to convince you that making money should not be your first <laughs> motivation. Yeah, but we've so under, you go in there to make a difference yeah, and then to definitely. get your money back but don't make a lot of money make a lot of money that's what you should do somewhere else is that a good pitch sex. though is that a good pitch i'm Patricia? not i'm not going to comment uh, <laughs> on that i think no. that's an answer well. by the way <laughs> So let's just talk very briefly about COVID. How how has COVID impacted your work these days? How has it affected what it is you do? Uh, let me answer that question with stories, because I know you like that. Um, there's two ways that COVID has. There's two ways that COVID has impacted our clients and the, the places that we are working in. Um, And both of them have very serious ways of, yeah, very serious. One of them is uh, people have, are staying home. So companies are not working or are not able to achieve certain, a certain uh, factories have closed. And so there is a job loss. So FMO has been using the, a lot of the impact that the FMO does that through our loans that we're trying to capture is employment. So COVID really is threatening all of this good work that not just FMO, but the World Bank and many other institutions have been working towards uh, in, in trying to alleviate poverty by creating employment. So that really is on the line at the moment with a lot of companies going that if, if, if we think of companies in the Netherlands are fragile and and but they're they're still more resilient there they have a lot less uh they have a they have a lot less stability uh and so we're seeing job loss that's one uh, one one aspect and we're trying our hardest to find ways to support our clients to to minimize that impact the second part is on the infection rates on on people getting infected uh and potentially even dying and that actually has an impact uh and and again let me give you the story of a port that we have uh in latin america that uh has 
has quite a few infection rates. And at the moment, they're not able to substitute these people that have been ill with other people because this is this is specialized work. So that means that the port itself could potentially uh, actually operate at less capacity. And that also means a disruption in the whole supply chain of goods. Um, you know, similarly, we have farmers and uh, I can talk a bit more there as well, where we're, co- we're coming to um, the time, the, 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 the what do you call it? Uh, when you collect, when you when you harvesting, harvesting. So similarly, there there are farmers uh, there that are now we're starting to the time of the time of harvest, and uh, you need to bring in workers. How do you do that in a pandemic when people are not, are not able to be close to each other? But you need to pick those berries, you need to pick those uh, those fruits. So how do you do that? So we're starting to have these two disruptions: one where it's not. You're not your job is not a loss, but actually you need people and you can't get them. And one, you you have to close because it's there's a there's a whole supply chain that has been disrupted and you now actually don't have a, a business anymore, and so you start you you lose your job. So this is what we're seeing, and and we're following quite closely and we're trying to support our clients as much as possible. And how about you, Haska? Yes, well, uh, COVID poses lots of challenges, you can imagine. And I would like to quote here one of the farmers I met during one of my um, recent trips um, last year, actually, because I haven't traveled this year because of COVID. (laughs) It was uh, a farmer in Zambia and he told me, disasters come, do not let them put you down. And I think that's very wise because, you know, disasters come, but you should be... Uh, resilient, react on it, make the best out of it. Uh, farmers, uh, small, medium-sized entrepreneurs, they faced incredible challenges because of COVID. Because imagine if a land is in lockdown, how are you going to get to your fields to harvest? Where uh, uh, where do you hire your workers to help you with your harvest? Uh, how do you get to the market to sell your produce? when there's a lockdown. Um, so there are immense challenges because we, what we've seen in Africa, but also Asia, is whole food supply change broke down. And this is another reason why we should really not forget about these people and invest, help them where we can to get those supply chains up and running again. Right. That's pretty much what Patricia was saying, too, that this has really becomes a supply chain issue. It's true. How do you solve this problem? How do that mean that? But that leads, if you solve that problem, that leads to the next problem. You need people all along the supply chain. And if the people are all sitting at home because of COVID, you can't get anything done. And those people, they have to, uh, those farmers, they need seeds. They need fertilizer for their new yields to put the seeds on the ground. But, you know, uh, there are no new seeds. Because those containers are still here in Rotterdam, maybe in the port, and they're not in uh, Zimbabwe or other countries where they have to be uh, uh, provided to the farmers. So you know, as, huge as, problems. As long as we're talking about the farmers, um, it's we were talking before about investors and how they have a real learning curve when it comes to doing this kind of investment mm-hmm. in a fragile state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the farmers have to adjust to the way they do things mm-hmm. when investors turn up. 
right? Uh, mm-hmm. Can you guys give me some examples of how who the people you work with locally have had to adjust uh, in order to uh, meet the demands of the investors who are lending the money? Can you give me some practical that's, examples? That's an interesting question because what you see, for example, is that investors, they don't lack... Um, um, a lack of information or they don't like uh, investors don't like a lack of information because um, they want to have a track record so if you're going to invest you want to know what's your profit last year what's your profit the year before Uh, what's your business plan what comes in Uh, what are your costs what goes out Um, and and preferably all on a big excel sheet right exactly preferably on a big excel sheet and you have this whole paperwork all nicely uh, in your computer and you can just send it to the bank and ask for a loan but that's not how it works in most developing countries so the farmers they have may they might have this little uh, dirty piece of paper with some numbers on it or it's all in their heads uh, and that's that's difficult then to decide for a financial institution to grant a loan but that is so something what, but, but what do they have to do then do they so actually what, have to learn excel i mean how does it work well, actually <laughs> <laughs> that's also something we help them with as solidaridad so we work with those farmers and luckily an increasing number of farmers have smartphones or old Nokia's, but they have a phone. So what we work with is on form, uh, our phone-based applications, where with form diaries, where they can just easily put all the numbers in, and then they can share it with the bank, build up their credit profile, and receive a loan. So this is really something now the farmers learn, and actually they like it as well, because they have much more overview of how much land they have, uh, what are the most profitable crops, uh, so they also like the data to be more effective and profitable in their uh, in their farming business. How about you, Patricia? Is this the kind of thing that you that you also have to face? I have so many examples <laughs> to them. I'm actually laughing a bit. Um, do you know how many times I've heard, "Oh, Patricia, this is Africa," <laughs> or "This is India," or "This is Nicaragua." Um, in, as an excuse for not being able to do what we are asking, um, it's it's, and every time, um, almost you know, every time someone says that, always rings alarm bells uh, on on it for us. Um, I have many many things we do when we arrive. Um, we have a lot of of of, of conditions, uh, and a, a lot of it is on the reporting, absolutely, but. Um, Sometimes, for example, we arrive and we realize actually that um, the the wages are too low. So we, we want them to increase the wages. We want them to increase the conditions. We want them to improve the conditions. Workers' accommodations, where for them it's standard to sleep on the floor. For us, it's not. We want them to actually have proper workers' accommodation. This is the standards that we bring. This is what comes with our money. Um, and then having to... Can you give me an example of somebody who you, you, you had to actually get in there and sort of make a real intervention, as it were? I can. I can actually... This, someone reminded me of this story. I can't, of course, tell names and and but I, I can say the country was in Burkina Faso and, uh, and it was a client that had a lot of women in uh, in its in its employment and I remember going in and they were working in a, in a and they they were complaining that the women were not as productive as the counterparts in Asia and I looked around it and I said and I, and I went to the toilet and I come back the best thing you do whenever you're in one of these sites is to go to the toilet um, and come back because the, the the state of the toilet really tells you a bit so the it's normally the last thing that you do you clean up or that you fix so if 
it's in a really bad state, that means that everything else is also not, uh, it's, it's, it's not it's not very well. And I went to the toilet. They had about 2,000 women working. And there were two toilets for for the women. And so I just made it very... So wait, two toilets for 2,000 people? 2,000 women, yes. So and that's... two toilets for the men, but they were like 50. <laughs> So just just little that, and I just I made a little small calculation how you know how long does it take for a woman to pee, <laughs> and how that reflects in their production. And not just pee. Not just pee. I'm just I was being I was being you know kind, uh, and they only had half an hour for for lunch, which is, was not enough to get two thousand women to pee. Uh, and why they actually had that it, it made economic sense for them to actually improve the, the women's conditions and not just so it was I mean the toilet is a funny example but it was the transport it was trying to understand what time this these women woke up uh, what did they do before they came to work and a lot a lot of times in in, in in Africa the woman continues doing the household chores plus the employment not just Africa yes that's correct <laughs> I'd make that point <laughs> that is correct <laughs> but you know they were waking up at five in the morning to be able to do everything so to be able to get uh, prepare all the house for whilst they were gone to be able then to catch the to then walk, then come to the come to 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 the workplace, work for the eight hours, have a two toilets to pee, and then go back, walk back home, and then do the everything else. Whilst, for example, if you provide transport, that already diminishes the time. That already helps them if you increase their toilets. If you provide a nursery uh, for the kids, all of these things, you know, focus to the women. And this is a, this is a, a client that the first thing he said to me was, Patricia, this is Africa. And so, but at the end, and this is some of the things that we start working with them um, to showcase that it's not just good for the women. It makes economic sense for you too. This is, you know, $1 spent now that is actually going to reap rewards in the future. Um, and I think, I mean, this is a good example, but also even increasing impact. We see a lot of our clients that don't understand the impact that they're having and how they can actually, by not doing that much more, uh, by, for example, uh, employing a little bit more women or by providing meals or by uh, just adding certain tweaks, actually their impact could double. So um, so it not just it doesn't just improve lives. It adds to the bottom line. It adds to the well. bottom line, but and but it also improves the, the, the it solidifies the business that they're having. I mean, we have we have uh, governance. Uh, we have governance offices that look at the governance structure to make it a more robust uh, and sound decision making structure. So all of these are, are, are areas that we bring in and that normally investors are not expecting when they ask for the loan because they're thinking they're going to get the money, but they get all of us uh, in trying to get, uh, yeah, in, 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 in trying to support them actually in becoming more resilient. And Patricia makes a very important, maybe I can add there, Patricia makes a very important point that it's uh, sometimes you have to uh, take entrepreneurs along that it's in their, their own interest as well to improve their business and make their business more sustainable. Um, so we work also in textile factories, for example, and we know that there are quite a number of textile brands who are very critical on the circumstances in the factories they uh, uh, they buy from. So you also see when you help uh, a factory to become more sustainable, to have a workers' council, to pay higher wages, to have health and safety standards in place, uh, to have this hygiene uh, issues solved, uh, then you also see that this factory has also access to another market and can have a better price for its products. So it's really an, uh, a win-win situation than 
uh, you achieve. It makes good economic sense, exactly. not just humane sense. No. Within our job, we face dilemmas constantly. Um, people think it's, it's, you know, we have a handbook of best practices, just go and implement them. It's not that easy. Um, because, of course, you have the context that you are in, and, and, and really that plays a role on how, on, on, in shaping how we go about it. Um, so, this is an example where, you know, for example, it is a standard. We, we, we have our clients, we ask our clients to work five days a week. Of course, you can, you know, five days a week, you can always of course it'd go a little bit more um, but why why would you why specifically five days a week according to the ILO convention which is the international labor organization which kind of dictates the rules and regulations of, of, of labor laws around the world um, and it's safe it's safe for your health it's you know you have to have at least a day of rest etc you also have you can, you can only have certain time, number of hours that you work per day you can't work 24 hours um, and working at night requires certain conditions and rest times in comparison to working at day there's all kinds of these uh, best practices which we implement and we ask our clients to follow independently of the country that we are in. So you turn up there and you say it's time for you to work five days a week now and they say We don't like that because we want to go home and our family lives far away so please let us work longer hours more days in a row so we can visit our family and go home. Exactly. And then you say (laughs) And then we have a dilemma. In our hands, uh, you know, what do we do? Um, because there's never the dilemmas. There's never a win-win. It's both lose-lose situation. Do we, uh, you know, do we impose the, this, these working days because of their health? Do we allow them to go to, to continue working, but knowing that their health might be in danger? Um, and it's not us. It's our clients that we have. We've, you know, we are now. We're going. All of this is going through our clients, and our clients come back with this dilemma. And it's like, if we, you guys want this, but we have this issue. What do we do? So. Um, so we try and solve with them the best way. And I think on this one, we came to a compromise. Again, and this, and this shows that the client, they're willing. They're, they're, there's a lot of willingness to, to really meet, to try and, and do what's best, um, where they incurred additional costs that they were not uh, foreseeing. They would pay for that extra day um, that they were not working and they would still pay them. So there was a bit of, a, I don't remember exactly the, the how it ended, but I do remember that our client paid more. A, a compromise was found. It was a bit of a compromise, right. yes, that resulted into higher costs. Maybe uh, I can give another example with sure. a less happy end, in a sense. Uh, we worked with a community in Kenya uh, producing beans. And those beans were brought to a canning factory, uh, also in Kenya, canned and then uh, exported to be bought uh, here in Europe uh, within a European supermarket. So quite a solid supply chain. Um, so those uh, bean farmers, at a certain point of time, they wanted to build a greenhouse because they saw sometimes the temperature dropped, they were in the highlands, so they thought when we build a greenhouse, we can increase our yields. So you think that's quite a solid business case because they had already enough taker, uh, they had quite some experience. But what happens? This is a community of farmers and they wanted to have this loan for the greenhouse together. So it was not one person taking out the loan, it was a community wanting to take out the loan. So then the financial institution said, yeah, it doesn't tick the box because you're 
Though you're no legal entity, you cannot take a loan as a community, as a village. So, no, we're not going to give you the loan. Full stop. And that was, that, it sounds to me like it was, this wasn't the, the issue of the local farmers having to learn how to do something. It was the institutions said, well, well we're a big, giant institution that requires a lot of paperwork for certain things. You don't meet our paperwork. You don't qualify as an institution, therefore no money for you. Exactly. But isn't this, I mean, this is inevitably the kinds of incompatibilities you're going to have yeah. between big bureaucracies, right? Yeah. Here, over here in Europe, where everything exists on paper, yeah. and in other parts of the world where things are far more informal. Okay. I mean, this must be happening yeah. constantly with this you guys. Is also what we do. So what happens here with those farmers, in the end, we as Solidaridad, we gave them the money to build the greenhouse. It could have been a loan, but we gave them the money. And it was very successful. So they um, made lots of profit. They have brick houses now. They have water. See, you can make profit. Secondary school. But what we did afterwards, that we went back to this financial institution and we presented the case. So we said, okay, look what you did. You denied the loan, but here we have all the paperwork that shows that it has been very, very successful and that it had been uh, a very successful investment. So we also talked with them to enable them to learn that next time they would be maybe more flexible and accept a community uh, as, a, uh, as a loan taker instead of an individual, for example. And, and did that actually happen? Did they say they will be more flexible next time? They are going to try to change their policies. So let's change the subject now. Heska, uh, can you give me an example of a new development that you're excited about? I'm very excited about the opportunities that new technology offers us. So um, we have now uh, the opportunity to directly invest, for example, here in Europe, you, me, in entrepreneurs in developing countries. How? We don't need any financial institution. We just need an app. We need a web page where uh, those entrepreneurs can present themselves how much money they need. We can just poop, transfer the money directly in their mobile wallets and they can uh, invest and grow their business and make impact. And what's this called? Plus Plus. It's called Plus Plus. Plus Plus. And it's an app you can download. Yeah, you can go to plusplus.nl, uh, create an account and start investing. That's great. And the same uh, question to you, Patricia. Is there something you're excited about right now? A new development? Anything happening in the world where you think to yourself, yes, this is cool. I think we are, in terms of the world, I think we're more and more aligned on the climate change. Um, and, and I see more and more appetite for forestry projects, which uh, and until now they have not been um, the cup of tea of banks, of, of not just commercial, but even development banks. Forestries require long, long, a long, long uh, period of time. <coughs> so they have a high risk. Um, and I'm seeing more and more um, the wheels turning towards us investing in forestry projects. And forestry projects not just bring timber, they really are a catalyst for, for you know, from ecosystem services to, to uh, natural resource-based uh, uh, um, 
community and natural resource-based uh, exploitation. So it really it allows communities to uh, in, to live within and profit of you know and also protects the environment. It's good for the for, for the air. It's good for for the world. So before this was really difficult and I think I see a pattern towards us being able to invest more and more so I'm quite excited about that and FMO is uh, uh, hopefully going to do a lot more business in uh, agroforestry projects and, and while we're at it Patricia I mean the both of you work in a pretty challenging field. It's filled with difficulties and pitfalls and tough sells as I think the both of you have made abundantly clear um, but what is the one thing that really keeps you going? The one thing where you say to yourself, this is why I get dressed every morning, I put on my, my business clothes and I get to work doing this. For me, it's the happiness of the people. I was one of the, in my recent trips, I met this uh, farmer in Ghana and he told me, I'm dancing every time when I set foot on my small palm or plot. So I asked him, why you're dancing? He said, because in the last four years, I quadrupled my yields. And that has such a big impact. I sent my school children to secondary school now. And that makes me very happy when you see these individual examples of people finding their way out of poverty into prosperity. Anything like that happening in your life, Patricia? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, so for me, I think it's it's similar. There's a good feel thing about it, but the fact that you um, that you are changing people and you are part of that change, that you are actively being the you are actively you see you see the changes. Um, but that's actually what I'm asking. I mean, is there a moment you travel, you go to these places, you go, you you insert yourself into people's lives, actually. Yeah. Exactly. And you change the course of their lives through and, what you're doing. And and it allows me to be innovative uh, in but, many But I ways. mean, is there a moment where somebody come up to you and said to you, thank God you guys are here. Thank God you're doing this because otherwise I would be stuck. I'd be, I'd be headed nowhere in my life. Um, well, I've never had people kind of thanking me like that, but I don't need that. It's it's it's, it's a slightly different uh, recognition in even the, the what you get. Um, it's because we, some of our clients, they're with us for you know 18 years. Uh, they they're with us for five, six, seven years. So you actually see them grow. You see a mentality. You see, there are two things that happen. You see a mentality shift in in our clients, where suddenly they come for us. They come you know to us because of financial needs, but actually uh, after four or five years they win sustainability awards and and or you have you know people that we have kind of nurtured them within within our clients to be who they are today then suddenly they become uh, women of, of 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 you know in the sustainability area in the top women in in their countries and so you start you, you change mentalities you change behaviors and this is not something that one can just go ah oh, it, it happens overnight and when you see our the trajectory and the journeys that our clients take and you know that you did that you know that when you started no one was working on environmental and social and when you finished they have five people working on that that's you that's your contribution um, and then you know that actually suddenly when they when you started they had zero money to provide to communities or they had a measles 20,000 but now they have half a million that's you that's your efforts that's you so I don't need it's we don't get a thank you it's not even for that it's really that as 
as an individual, the work that FMO allows me to do and that my colleagues do, you actually see the world changing in front of your eyes. And yes, sometimes it feels overwhelming because there's so many people, but you, we start with one and then you start with another one and you start with another one. And so we build. So for me, that's what, um, that's why I still go to work and uh, I will continue to do so. Yeah. And that was our show. Many thanks to my guests, Patricia Nicolau, the Environmental and Social Manager at FMO. Thank you very much, Patricia. Thank you. And Heske Verberg, the Managing Director at Solidaridad Europe. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This is a new podcast, and we'd love to know what you think of it. So rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you saw it coming. Don't forget to subscribe. Challenge of the Decade is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our site, future-minded.fmo.nl. That's future-minded.fmo.nl. This has been Challenge of the Decade. My name is Jonathan Goubert. Have a challenging week. <laughs> <laughs>